0: What you're going to see as we look at these two chapters is the repetition of the words remember and forget. We're supposed to remember something and not forget some things, and unfortunately, we remember all the wrong stuff and we forget all the wrong stuff, and we have to really put it in reverse to live the Christian life. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, if you're going to have an intimate relationship with God, there's some things you need to remember and some things you need to forget. There's some things that you need not remember. And there's, there's some things you must forget. It's a, a discipline of the mind. And what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 8 and 9, if you remember now, if we just look back where we've been, the people of Israel are standing uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. God has been promising them now for over 40 years that He's going to take them into a land of milk and honey, and right now they're looking at it. They can look across the plains of, of Jericho, and across the Jordan River, and they can see the hills of Judea over there, and they know that it's a very special place, and they can taste it, they can feel it, they can begin to enjoy what it's going to be like to have a, their own home, with their own little garden, their own little plot of land, and not be traveling like a bunch of Bedouins, as they've been doing for the past 40 years. They're beginning to feel it, they can look at it, they can taste it, but they've got some big problems. They've got a river at flood stage and they've got some giants in fortified cities over there. They tried to fight them once and got badly defeated. And so it's it's really, really difficult as they look at the things that their hearts desire so much and they've got these enemies and opposition and problems that prevent them from enjoying what's there. Well, we've seen that God has them now right on the river, right on the east side of the river, And before he sends them over, uh, he is going to remind them about a few things and he's going to impress upon them the most important things before they cross the river, take on this huge battle uh, or series of battles and take possession of the promised land. Uh, He's going to remind them of the covenant that he's made with them. God doesn't just make a contract. He makes a covenant. And of course, we know ultimately he seals it with the blood of his own son. And He seals it in us by His Holy Spirit. He's dead serious about this, you know. He has a covenant with us. It's a marriage. It's unbreakable. He's not going to divorce us. And He tells them about about this covenant. We notice that in the first four chapters, a little less than four, up through uh, verse 43 in chapter 4, that He gives them the preamble to the covenant. The preamble of the covenant reminds both parties who they are. And how they got to this point in their relationship. And, of course, he reminds them about their episode at Kadesh Barnea when they had sent spies into the land and saw that it was a good land and they refused to go because they were terrified. They had their chance 38 years before and they blew it. He reminds them of that in the Preamble of the Covenant. And in the Preamble of the Covenant, he reminds them how he took them up even in the midst of their own misery brought them to the east side of the Jordan and defeated uh, Og and Sion, the two kings of the Amorites, and has provided for them all along the way. That's the preamble of the covenant. Then when we get to chapter 5 in particular, he begins to give them what we call the stipulations of the covenant. The preamble introduces the parties. The stipulations give the terms of the covenant. And the terms of the covenant are, at its heart, the Ten Commandments. And that's the reason the commandments of the Lord are so important. These are the stipulations of the covenant. This is who Jesus Christ is. The law is a description of God's character that is communicable to His partner in the covenant, namely ourselves. And so we get the Ten Commandments, and then from then on until now, what God has been saying about this covenant and its stipulations is that we must keep these stipulations, we must keep His law, Because of our relationship with Him. And here's the relationship with Him. We adore Him. We love Him. It's personal. We fear Him. We want to walk with Him because we love Him. We fear Him. We listen to Him. So He's saying, here are the stipulations of the covenant, and here's why you're to keep it. It's because of God's character and your relationship with Him. Now, the problem is going to be, as they enter the promised land, is that, and and we all know this, it's the problem of wealth. You say, well, I don't think I'm very wealthy. Well, let me tell you, uh, you haven't traveled very much then, because if you've traveled the world very much, you know that you are very wealthy, and uh, you know that you're sitting at the top of the pyramid of wealth in the world. And what happens to us when we get wealthy is we start to go a little stupid, and we begin to think that... We're pretty cool. <laughs> and we begin to think that, hey, I can handle this. And uh, we need to be reminded of a few things, namely where our wealth came from and what we're supposed to be doing with our wealth and so on. And so God is going to give them a little message right now that should stick in their heads when they get into the promised land and everything's going well for them. Because when things go well, we tend to forget how we got there. We tend to forget who got us there. And we tend to forget how we're going to stay there. It's amazing what wealth and prosperity and success and prestige will do to the man's mind. It's just amazing. you got this little dirt ball who thinks he's a king. It's unbelievable to see how these people behave. God in His grace knows that's what happens to men when they taste just a little bit of success. They begin to get pr- proud and arrogant and think ridiculous things about themselves. So what we're going to get in chapters 8 and 9 is a little strip down exercise. <laughs> it's going to remind us that, hey, you came from dirt, you're going to dirt, you're dirt ball. And <laughs> you're, you're, you're in this place for one reason, God has been good to you. Now there's joy in this message. Before we look at it, let's realize this is, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, for us to realize who we really are is a great comfort because if our success and prosperity and the good things in life, if they're coming from Him and out of His love for us, they're likely to continue. If they're coming out of your intelligence and your charm, believe me, it's not going to last very long. But if we find all of God's goodness, uh, the source of the good things in life that we're enjoying, that should be a great confidence builder to us. It also uh, is a cause for worship because it's an amazing thing that you have sinful men like ourselves Uh, who are studying the Bible this morning, who are supposed to go out and be people who serve in the name of Christ in this community. That's an amazing thing to me when you look at where we come from. Uh, It reminds me of the story that Steve Brown tells. He says, if you ever see a dog playing checkers, don't criticize his game. Just be amazed he's playing at all. And that's the way that it is with us. We're a bunch of dogs playing checkers, and we're going to see why when we look at Deuteronomy 8 and 9. And it kind of frames up how you approach life as a person, a little dog playing checkers. Let's look at chapter 8. We're going to read one chapter at a time and deal with one at a time. Uh, they, they, they are connected. They're tied together, but they take different approaches. Uh, in chapter 8, uh, we're going to see that, that we are tempted to take credit for whatever measure of success we've experienced. It just happens like that. No one had to teach us how to do this. Our mama didn't have to explain this to us. We just, by nature, take credit for our successes and forget where that all came from. What we're going to see in chapter 9 is a little bit different twist on this, that in our religious lives, our spiritual lives, we tend to take credit for that too. It's amazing the arrogance of the fallen human mind. Well, let's look at chapter 8 and look at how we tend to deal with our wealth and success. Verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then, in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways, And by fearing Him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, And all that you have is multiplied Then your heart be lifted up and then you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord, your God. Okay. What we want to do in chapter eight is remember his grace and our weakness. Remember his grace. Remember our weakness. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Let's look first of all at His grace. And we notice in verses 1 through 10, His grace is bountiful. His grace is bountiful. Now, we just got through Thanksgiving. I hope you had a good one, as did I. And I imagine that at your Thanksgiving dinner it's very likely that somebody bowed their head and thanked the Lord for all of His Bountiful blessings to us, and if the prayer was a little bit more than just a quick one, and sometimes in some homes you even go around the table, and everyone—we've done this on occasion—everyone just share what you're thankful for this past year, and then you kind of gather that up in a prayer, and you thank the Lord for someone who graduated from sixth grade, and someone who got through an accident and got their stitches all done, and and someone who, who who got a job, and and someone who did well in school, and someone who has a girlfriend, and you're just just thankful for lots of things, God's bountiful blessings. I wonder, though, uh, this past Thanksgiving uh, lunch, how many of us thank the Lord for all the bad things that happened to us this year? (laughs) Lord, I just thank you for the breakup that nearly broke my heart back in June. Lord, I thank you for the cancer I've got. Lord, I thank you for taking old Aunt Martha. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this, that, and the other. I doubt that happened at any of our tables. But here's what the Lord is is saying to us. His bountiful blessings include some very difficult stuff. His bountiful blessings include your worst experiences. Because He says in verse 16, you noticed when we read it, this all in the end is for your good. It sounds a lot like your daddy when you're five years old and he's getting ready to spank it, doesn't it? This is for your good. Well, I don't know whether your daddy was right or not, but there's something divine about that. When we get our weapons in God's hands, it is for our good. Now let's look at some of these bountiful blessings of His grace that we're supposed to remember. He blesses us through His chastisements. This is verses 1 through 6 all the way through because we see first of all in verse 2, he humbles us. Why did he humble them? They needed it. <laughs> Why does he humble you? You need it. You know what happens to you when you lose your humility? You say, when was the last time I ever did that? <laughs> right then. Uh, you know what happens when you lose your humility? You know what happens when you get proud? You quickly turn aside. We're going to see this phrase here, and you'll see it elsewhere in the Pentateuch. They quickly turned aside. How quickly? What leads them to turn aside? Pride. They think they can control the universe. They think they can create their own gods. Get this. The Israelites thought they could create their own God. They're going to be the creator of God. (laughs) That's that's called arrogance. We're arrogating to ourselves. Something that doesn't belong to us. That's what happens when you get proud. Very, very few things that are good happen when you're proud to your spiritual life. In fact, I can say nothing good happens through your pride. And so God takes us into the wilderness to strip us down. Uh, on my, I think it was my third trip to Israel, uh, I, I said to our group, you know, this time I want to go through the Sinai. I mean, most people when they go to Israel, they don't go through the Sinai, it's just hot sand. <laughs> but I want to go out there and see what this was like. So start over in Egypt and just take that long ride. I didn't walk it. <laughs> I did not walk it. I'd still be there in bones. I'd just all be there, just bones. But I, I took a nice little bus. And it was air conditioned. But every once in a while, I would get out. It's a long way. And you get out there and you can't survive amongst all the fiery serpents and scorpions and, and the just the heat and the aridity. There's Where do you get water uh, except salt water? Uh, it's a very dangerous place to be on foot. I wanted to experience it. It does strip you down. You can feel it when you just get out and you feel that hot breeze coming through, the dry air and the sand blowing in your face. It humbles you. And the Lord says, I took you out there to humble you. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus began his ministry, where was the first place he went? Went right into the wilderness. Same word. Uh, of course, he was just right around Jericho. He didn't go all the way down into Sinai, but we think. But Jesus went into the wilderness. Why? Because he was meek and humble in heart and it is in his meekness and his humility that we find rest for our souls. Jesus went out to cultivate his own humility in the wilderness and there he quoted chapter 8 verse 3 man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's in humility that we understand what we really need. Gentlemen don't resent the moments you've been stripped down and even humiliated. God is behind that. That's not an accident. That didn't surprise God. He's designing those moments. Why? For your good. He one day is going to exalt you at the highest place. Far beyond anything your pride ever conceived of. Your wicked pride cannot conceive of how high you are going to be when God exalts you. That's the irony of it. Your pride really is not good enough for the future. But it's a terrible trap for the present. Because in the present, you're not in an exalted body. You're in a body that's wearing down. That's still experiencing the curse. And we ought to be humbled. We've not been given our kingly garb yet. And sometimes we need to go into the wilderness to be humbled. And God is doing that for you. And the prayer that I have for all of us is that we will have these experiences often enough. In fact, every day when we're reminded that we are not the Lord, neither do we make our gods. He made us and has sovereign rights over us. Everything about us. And we're humbled when we go into the wilderness and experience uh, that sort of dependence upon Him. Then notice in verse 2 also, He humbles us and tests us. Jesus went out into the wilderness not only to be humbled, but to be tested. And when you are in the wilderness, you too are being tested. You know, David said in the Psalms, Lord, try me. Test me. And see if there be any wicked thing in me. In other words, David was wise enough in his lower moments when he was humbled to say to the Lord, Lord, you prove me. You test me. You purge me of the evil. And how is that going to come? Through painful, humiliating experiences through the wilderness. And what happens when you're tested? Well, it's just like, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, with our faith, when it's tested, it's refined like fire. The dross comes to the top of the crucible and you rake it off and then you're left with it pure gold. And that's what testing does. It causes the dross to come to the top so you can rake it off and it refines your faith. It refines your love. It refines your hope. So the wilderness is very useful for testing and refining it also enables you to glorify God. Because in your testing, what comes forth is your faith. You may say, well, my faith is tiny, tiny, tiny. Yeah, I know. But just like a seed, one day that little tiny seed of faith grows into a great tree and others take rest in it. So that little seed of faith will come forth in your testing. And so God says, do you remember what I did for you? I took you out of Egypt. I put you in the wilderness to test you. I put you through the Great Recession to test you, to see what was in your heart, and whether you would just be completely in despair because a lot of your bank account uh, went away, whether you'd be worried and tense and all wired up, and whether you'd snap at your wife and lose your purpose in, in your existence, or whether you would receive that from the Lord and you would trust Him with the outcome of your life. Gentlemen, how can you tell whether that's in your heart or not? Well, how do you look at? Do you think your bank account is good enough to save you? Do, you? do you think your savings are good enough to hold things together until you die? I mean, wasn't this just a warning, just a shot across the bow this this past decade? Hey, you think you've got all this stuff? Do you know how quickly I can take it away? You've been putting your confidence in that. Are you crazy? we get humbled, we get tested, we get reminded that you cannot put your confidence in things uh, of yourself because God takes them away like that. Why? For your good. Because it only makes sense to put your faith in something that's reliable. And the only one who's reliable and eternal is God Himself. And you put your faith in Him and His promises, you're going to be fine. Not only are you going to be fine, you're, you're going to be extraordinarily blessed. And in the wilderness, verses 3 and 4, He also teaches us. And notice this phrase. He says that He let you hunger. God let you hunger. You say hunger is a curse. Poverty is a curse. What do you mean God let me be poor? Well, you read on. He let you be poor so that it would be really clear to you when He feeds you that it came from His hand. And when you had all that wealth and you were feeding yourself, quote, quote, you thought you were feeding yourself. And so often we just take a meal, dive right into it. And the only reason we pray a prayer is because our mama taught us. It's just part of the ritual. Gentlemen, the reason we pray a prayer at mealtime is because we acknowledge that He feeds us. That it comes from His hand but that, that McDonald hamburger is from the Lord. And just because we've got McDonald's and we have an economic system, and just because you have money in your pocket, don't think for a moment that you can sustain yourself. It can go like that. All we need is one nice bomb in the right place. And we'll be without power, we'll be without food, we'll be without clean water. Just look at what happens to Haiti or other places in the world. Do you think God can't do that in a moment? So he takes us into the wilderness so that we get the lesson again. God, thank you for this piece of bread. Thank you for feeding me today. Of course, in their case, the bread came from heaven, the manna. And he teaches them of this. The Lord learned it himself uh, when he was in the wilderness. And Jesus taught often about these things. He says, don't think that your life consists of your possessions. Your life consists of Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's life, Christ in you. He also, verses 5 and 6, He disciplines us. And of course, you get this in Hebrews 12 where the writer of Hebrews is referring to Deuteronomy. And he says, brethren, don't you know That if you're not disciplined by the Lord, you're an illegitimate kid. You're a bastard. If you're not disciplined by the Lord. Every true son receives the gift of discipline from his father. Loving discipline. God takes us out into the wilderness to discipline us. To chastise us. To straighten us out. And brothers, we need it. Everybody here needs it. Everybody here needs to be disciplined by the Lord. And if you're not disciplined as a loving son, you will be disciplined as a rebellious son. But everybody here needs the discipline of the Lord. And what Moses says to these people is, look, He took you out into the wilderness to teach you and to shape you by discipline. He didn't just teach you by announcing words to you. He taught you by living life with you and causing you to be hungry and thirsty. And then showing you that he's the answer. And then when you disobeyed, he punished you. And gentlemen, he does the same thing today. He doesn't punish us as slaves. He punishes us as sons who are deeply loved. And if we're not getting that kind of care from him, we're not his children at all, is what the Bible teaches us. So his grace is bountiful. Thank God for all these blessings. The blessing of humility The blessing of trials and afflictions. The blessing of chastisements and discipline. Thank you, Jesus. Try that one on next Thanksgiving lunch and see what your wife says to you after that. (laughs) But I'm serious. This is not an add-on for our good. This is not the icing on the cake. Uh, Gentlemen, it's the cake. The good that He has for us is the Holy Land. It's the New Jerusalem the new heavens and the new earth coming down out of heaven for us. That's the good that He's got for us. How's He going to get us there? Only one way. Through the bountiful blessings of His chastisements. Now, notice in verses 7-10, through He blesses us not only through His chastisements, but through His promises. He has rich and wondrous promises for us. And so, what, what you learn when you're being humbled in the wilderness is that nothing in this life can really sustain you. Only God can sustain you. And what that wilderness experience also does for you, it causes your heart to go out to the experience of plenty that is waiting for you. For example, one reason for the wilderness experience was to get the people to hope for the promised land because actually... The promised land was going to take some battles. They had to want the promised land in order to take it. How do you create a want? Well, often you do it through the wilderness. Starve them a little bit. Make them a little thirsty. Give them a few snakes, a few scorpions. And they start longing for the holy land. And gentlemen, it's the same way with us. If you look at your trials in life, you know, when you're wealthy, when you basically have three squares, and, and, and you have good medical care, and, and you have a car to drive, and, and you have a job to go to, you, just, you, you, you really just start to kind of enjoy this life. And most of us, if we were honest, say, you know, I, I want to go to heaven, but I don't really want to go today. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't want to pack it up today. I'm, I just, I'm just not ready to do that. Why are you not ready? Well, here's why. You're enjoying life. And really, in your mind, you'd rather stay here than go there. And let me tell you, that's nuts. It's because you haven't thought about there very much. You're thinking about here all the time. You're trying to squeeze this rotten lemon for all the rotten lemon juice it's got left. And you are ignoring the fact that there's this entire grove of delicious, delightful fruit waiting for you in the promised land. And you've gotten your... You've you gotten used to squeezing that old lemon, trying to get everything you can out of it. And it's, it's part of being a fallen human being. So sometimes the lemon has to get worse and worse and worse. And then you say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to heaven one day. Well, it took you about three years finally to draw that conclusion. Three years of misery before you really started to set your mind on the afterlife. And sometimes we wait until we're on our deathbed. And the preacher comes and and reads Revelation 21 to us. And then we start thinking about heaven. Gentlemen, you're supposed to think about it right now. What do you think the purpose of all your trials are? What do you think the purpose of all your afflictions is? It's to get you ready for heaven. Thinking about His promises. His promises are not pie in the sky. It's only pie in the sky if you don't believe it. This is reality. This is where you're going. Get your mind set on it. So what happens in the wilderness he blesses us for our good so that we'll be thinking about where we need to go and the battles we need to fight to take that land and possess it. And He gets our hearts trained on it. And how does He do that? He tells us one day you're going to be full. And you shall eat and be full. And you'll notice the description of this land. It's very graphic. It's very vivid. Honey. If I was, if you think about the word honey for a minute, Don't your taste buds start to kick in? Can't you kind of taste it? That's the reason for that word. Because you can taste it when it's said. And you talk about having flowing water. Did you notice all the references to water? Remember where they're standing? On the east side of the Jordan. They've been in the wilderness for 43 years. No water. Dry, arid, thirsty. Your throat parched all the time. And he says, you're going to be in a land that just is flowing with streams of potable water. Can you just taste that? Can you just feel it, the refreshment of water? It's a very vivid description. Why do you think we're given Revelation 21 and Revelation 22? It's very vivid. Why is it so vivid? So that you can begin to taste it and feel it and long for it because it is truly glorious far beyond any verbal description that can be given to us even in the Scriptures. This is just a foretaste. It's just a limited description of it. Why? To cause you to long after it. Why? Because then you'll live the life you're supposed to live and you'll fight the battles you're supposed to fight instead of going off to the side. You'll stay on target. So you're disciplined. The things in this life are stripped from you on occasion to remind you you cannot put your weight on them. And then you're given this vivid description of great bounty and blessing. So that's what happens. God blesses us through His promises. One day you're going to be full. One day you're going to be completely healthy. One day your body is not going to get arthritis. One day all your relationships are going to be right. One day when you get home. And then He says also He'll bless us through His promises, not only that we will be full, but we shall one day bless the Lord. And you know, this is a great promise. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm not preaching, I'm tempted to skip church. Is that terrible to admit? I mean, look, you guys that don't go to church very often, I understand completely. I mean, when I'm on vacation, I make a real point. You know, I'm going to church. Why do I make a real point? Because in the back of my head say, I don't want to sleep in. I'll catch it on radio later on. You know, what's in there for me? I mean, I, I suffer the same thing. And it, it, frankly, it's one reason I'm a preacher. It's, I'm sure to get to church that way. Uh, I'm serious. I mean, I, I found that, that being a pastor is good for my spiritual life. It keeps me in a discipline. You know, I talk about the Bible every Thursday morning. Uh, I go to church on Sunday. I go to prayer meetings. I mean, think of that. I'm going to prayer meetings. Uh, and that's one reason I'm a pastor is because it saves my soul. And, you know, we all need discipline. And we don't naturally bless the Lord. We, we talk about ourselves all the time. We're all, by nature, self-centered. We don't talk about the Lord. We don't thank Him by nature. You know, Thanksgiving Day. Well, it's a good we have one day out of the year, 365 days. Well, you know what? Every day, all the time, is supposed to be Thanksgiving. Try that on for size. We just don't naturally do that. But here's what Moses said. Here's a great promise for you. One day, you're going to be in your right mind. And you are going to be drawn to bless the Lord and to praise Him, to worship Him. It's going to be the greatest pleasure of your life. It's going to be the greatest thing that pleases the Lord and honors Him. It's going to be the greatest thing that adds to your relationship. And it's going to be the number one thing you want to do. You're going to be sitting at the table with a big fat tummy, full and happy, blessing the Lord. Now there's a vivid picture of our future. And that ought to keep us on track, gentlemen. He'll discipline us in the wilderness. And He'll bless us uh, through His promises about the future. Now, this is all about God. And we're supposed to remember things about God. It's in the preamble of the covenant. It's right here. But He also wants us to remember about our own weaknesses. Our our weakness is profound. We see this in the latter half of the chapter, verses 11 through 20. Our weakness is profound. We're a lot weaker than you ever thought. First of all, we're tempted to forget. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of My hand have gotten Me this wealth. Can you imagine making that kind of statement? My power and the strength of My hand have gotten Me this wealth. Well, here's a little formula that seems to me to be true. God's provision plus our arrogance equal forgetfulness and idolatry. And that's what you see in this chapter and the next one. When God provides for us and we arrogate to ourselves the power of that provision, that leads to our forgetfulness, which then leads to idolatry. That's the way it always works. And that's the reason that God wants us to remember because otherwise it will lead to idolatry. It's an amazing thing to wear your clothes and be walk be able to walk about and breathe and have your heart beat and have a few coins in your pocket and look to the Lord and say, you know, we've got a great relationship. You created everything and I earned it. Uh, but that is the temptation of every sinful man. And notice this in verses 19 and 20, that if we forget, if we forget the Lord, If we forget to thank Him, if we forget where we came from, if we forget that we are by nature dirt balls that He has made into princes and kings, then we will surely perish. Forgetfulness leads to faithlessness and that leads to destruction. Now, God always keeps a remnant of His people. His promises are sure. Uh, We said a moment ago, He never divorces His bride. But there are such things as hypocrites who join in with the team, who are part of ethnic Israel, who are part of the group in the wilderness, but their hearts were never in it. They're just being carried along by mama and daddy and grandparents, family tradition, tribal habits. And that's what got them into it and it's what's keeping them there. And they're the ones that you'll find they'll turn aside quickly. They'll be the first ones to take credit for their own success. And they'll be the ones who are destroyed in the end because they never were part of the bride. They never were truly, spiritually connected to God's people. They never were converted. They never really put their faith in God's promises and particularly in His Messiah. If we forget, we will perish. And I think you can see this, can't you? Through history, nation after nation, who have been evangelized, who have had the church established in their uh, geopolitical boundaries. And then they begin to get successful, and they usually do because you you can you can build a very good uh, political system on uh, Christians who believe the Bible. You can build a really good economy and an infrastructure on people who are honest and who believe in a work ethic and who believe in serving their neighbor and loving their neighbors themselves. You can build a really good economy on that, and as that economy grows. And people forget the Lord and they begin to think, oh, well, we have this nice economy. We have this wonderful culture. We have this great political system because our forefathers were so smart. Or we're so smart. Or we're more courageous than the rest of the people of the earth. And we forget the Lord. Then don't you see in history how nations decline one after the other? They just go right off the cliff and they're all destroyed because they forgot. God's people forgot. Don't blame anybody else. It was God's people who were in the midst of experiencing material gain who then thought that gain was to their own credit rather than a gift, undeserved gift, like a dog playing checkers. They forgot who their God was. And they'll be destroyed. Every one of them. Every nation, nation after nation will be destroyed because they forgot. That's the reason that out of his love, God is saying, don't forget Jonah. And keep reminding yourself, keep reminding your family, keep reminding your friends that you know what the story is. Now let's look at chapter 9. We've got a few minutes to deal with it. And here we're going to see that not only does it have to do with our attitude toward our material possessions and how we got those. Be very careful about that. But think about your salvation. I mean, if it's bad on material possessions, think think of a person who would claim that their salvation is to their own credit. It just gets, the story gets worse. And look at the warning that's given to us. Let's look at chapter nine. Here, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations, greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said. Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Wow. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You've been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath and the Lord was so angry with you that He was ready to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, that the Lord made with you. I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Let's stop right there. What we're seeing in chapter 9 is we must remember His faithfulness and our unrighteousness. His faithfulness and our unrighteousness. First of all, His faithfulness. His faithfulness is immense. And in verses 1 through 3, we see his faithfulness. Verses 4 through 29, all the rest of the chapter is about our unfaithfulness, our unrighteousness. Well, let's remember, first of all, his faithfulness. And how do you see this? Well, first of all, look at our opposition. Our opposition is awesome. The Anakim. They're giants, they're impossible to defeat. They're the Goliaths of the land. And there are a bunch of them. And you're supposed to go in and and defeat them without chariots, without horses, without iron. How are you going to do this? There's no way you can do it. No military strategist in his right mind would attack Canaan given the giants that are there. Nobody in their right mind would profess to follow Christ when you have this enormously powerful Satan, this opponent, this adversary breathing down your neck ready to lynch you in any given moment. Who in his right mind would seek to live a Christian life with an opponent like that? Well, because our God is more awesome, that's why. He's greater than the Anakim. He's greater than Goliath. He's greater than Satan. So much so that Jesus teaches us how to deal with Satan. He says, yes, Satan can kill you. But don't fear the one who can kill your body. Rather, fear the one who can kill your body and then throw you into hell. That's the one you fear. That's God. And furthermore, the Apostle John, who had to face Satan all of his life, who was afflicted greatly, he was put into exile in the Isle of Patmos, here's what he said. He said, greater is he who is within us than he who is in the world. Our faith overcomes the world. Our faith overcomes Satan and all the opposition. And so let's remember God's faithfulness. He promises to take on your adversaries. Anything that would come between you and God. Anything that would keep you from experiencing the ultimate good that is laid out for you in the life to come especially, but in moments in this life. Anything good that God has for you, Satan seeks to take away. And God is going to destroy him for that. And God right now, this very moment is protecting you. He has angels who are surrounding you. You have no idea The things from which you have been preserved even this morning on the way to Amen Bible study. You have no idea what He's done for you. He's been protecting you and watching you and guarding you and He has sent His armies here to get you home safely. He's absolutely determined. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's how determined He is and He happens to be infinitely powerful. He can do whatever He pleases. And here's what pleases Him, getting you home. So don't doubt it for a moment. Satan is awesome. God is infinitely more awesome. That's what He teaches us about His faithfulness. Now, let's spend the rest of our 11 minutes looking at the the bigger portion of this chapter which is about our unrighteousness. And we learn in verses 4-29 through our unrighteousness is outrageous. It's, It's outrageous for us to look at our spiritual lives and make any claim, innately, to make any claim about ourselves. In fact, we're going to see in this text, it's not that we're just as bad as everybody else, gentlemen. You you haven't understood what Moses is saying. If you think you're just as bad as everybody else, you're worse. I'm serious. You're worse than everybody else. And I think we'll see in this text why you're worse. So it's just the opposite of being proud about your salvation. You're humbled because here's what God did. He picked the worst people on the face of the earth to accomplish His mission of judging the other wicked nations. He picked the weakest, most incompetent people on the face of the earth to carry out the Great Commission. Let's look and see if this text will support what I just said. First of all, we see in verse 4, we are tempted to t- take credit for our salvation. Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> it's really amazing. But, you know, it's everywhere. One, uh, one, uh, I'm, I'm a romantic, so I, I enjoy sitting down about once a year with my wife and watching The Sound of Music. <laughs> it's just, you know, everything turns out well in the end and all this, it's just a great movie but there's one moment and it actually it's the most climactic moment in the movie where finally she realizes he's in love with her and he, and she's in love with him and they she gets kind of surprised by his love and they sing this stupid song <laughs> Rogers and Hammerstein wrote a beautiful score for this stupid song but here's the stupid song I must have done something good. I must have done something good. And that's the reason that I met you. I must have done somewhere in my past. I must have done something good. (laughs) That's a pile of crap. (laughs) You must have done something good. So you got this great job and you got a wonderful vacation home. You must have done something good. Well, you met Jesus, and you believe the gospel. Well, somewhere in your background, you must have been a good little boy. Maybe that works for Santa Claus, gentlemen, but it doesn't work with God. What he's saying is you can't take any credit for anything, and the moment you think there's one shred of righteousness on your part that caused God to turn his head and think you're kind of cool, he'd like to have you in the kingdom, you've missed the gospel completely. You haven't just obscured it. You haven't just corrupted it. You've destroyed it. The gospel is there's nothing in you, gentlemen. This is all of His grace. It's all of His faithfulness. That's the reason He says, don't think for a minute that there's some righteousness in you. He says, it is not because of your righteousness. Verses 4 and 5 show us the facts are otherwise. Completely otherwise. God is judging the nations through His people. He's dispossessing these nations before you. And he's using you to do it not because of your righteousness, because of their unrighteousness, their great wickedness. We know that for 400 years their wickedness had been piling up before the Lord. And finally he decides, I'll go get these numbskulls over there in Egypt who are slaves. I'll take them out and make a nation out of them. And I'll show the world, I'll use these people who don't have anything and certainly don't have any righteousness. They've been worshiping foreign gods and I called them years ago and they left me. I'm going to bring them out, bring them around to the side of the Jordan, invade this land and use them to dispossess the nations. And so when we go out proclaiming that God is king, that Christ is Lord of all the nations, and we make a claim that He owns it all, and in that sense, we're dispossessing all the false gods. And we're dispossessing all the kings of the earth who think they own something and have rights to something. We're dispossessing them. It's an announcement of judgment. Don't think it's because you're so cool and righteous. It's because God has taken up people who are undeserving to make this announcement. It's because of the wickedness of the nations. Secondly, notice in verse 5b, God is simply confirming His own word. He made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made that promise hundreds of years before. And you might forget, He doesn't forget anything except our sins when we come into Christ. God doesn't forget His promises to you. If He says He's going to do something for you, it can be centuries. He'll do it later. And he says, that is what I'm doing here. I'm keeping a promise. You think it's because you were so righteous? You think it's because you were good slaves in Egypt? What, what are you, you think it's because I thought you'd make a great nation to be an honor to me? No, it's because I made a promise. And notice thirdly, in, in verses 6 all the way through the end of the chapter, we are uniquely undeserving. This is what I say. We're not as bad as everybody else. We're worse. We're uniquely undeserving. Undeserving. Why do I say that? Well, look at the description of these people. God's people. They're stubborn. You are a stubborn people. I have tried everything. I've caused water to come out of a rock. I've sent quail out of the air. I've made a mountain smoke and quake. I've destroyed nations before you. And you still grumble. You're a very stubborn people. And gentlemen, I don't know about you, but I've been in the church for 35 years. You know what? We're a stubborn people. Why do we keep having the same sermons over and over again? It's amazing. People say, Pastor, I just never thought about that. I've been preaching on it here for 16 years. You never thought about it before. It's amazing. We're a stubborn people. Notice, secondly, we're not only stubborn, we're insolent. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath. Oh, I wish we had time. It would be a miserable time, but it would be a time that would be useful for us just to go through Exodus 14, Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17. Every chapter after they're led out of Egypt, they're just grumbling and quarreling and complaining and they're saying things about God that nobody in their right mind would even think. Why have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? unbelievable, insolent, right to His face. And we do things all the time. We know what He's commanded us to do. We look Him right square in the face, spit in His eye, and go do what we want to do. In the church. And thirdly, we're fickle. In verse 12, He says, they have turned aside. Not only that, they've turned aside quickly. It's amazing how quickly they turn aside. You get something on MTV, or you get some sitcom, or you get some story, some, some uh yeah, there you go. Simpsons. Uh, you, you, you look at something on TV and all of a sudden that's developing your theology. It's amazing how people develop their ideas about God and what gods they create. Gods for their own convenience. We're very fickle about this. And then all the way through the end of the chapter, verses 13-29, through 29, we're very forgetful. And this is where we get the heart of it. We're not going to read the rest of it. But in verses 13-24, through 24, we're forgetful concerning our sin. And what is the big sin that he points to here? Now, in the past, he's talked about Kadesh Barnea, when the spies went in and told them that they could take. The two spies told them they could take it, and they refused. And God judged them there. And then, of course, they tried to fight when they were chastised, and they were being presumptuous. They thought they could go off on their own and do it. Kadesh Barnea was a legendary place of their disobedience. But where is the worst place? He says, even at Horeb, even at Mount Sinai, even at the giving of the Ten Commandments. Here was the lowest moment in Israel's history. When they decided, and you read about this in Exodus 32, Moses is up in the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And he takes a little longer than they wanted. He was up there 40 days and 40 nights. A lot of time to think. Now, did God really bring us out here to destroy us or to bless us? Where is that man Moses anyway? And they started to complain. He had been gone a little while. And Exodus 32 tells us, well, okay, he's gone. We'll select our own God. Can you believe this? They're at the foot of Mount Sinai where God gave the Ten Commandments, and they decide to create another god, a golden calf. And they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, for heaven's sakes. They go to his own brother and say, Aaron, we think we need a god. Aaron did it! The high priest of the land. And he creates, he calls them to bring all the little gold earrings, strip themselves down, and create a golden calf. And then he says... Here is the God who brought you out of Egypt. What? Outrageous. Moses hears a little something in his ear. Sounds like a party. You ever heard that? Revelry, he says. He comes down out of the mountain. Because God says to him, Your people, Moses. And that's what it says in this text. God says to Moses, Your people. We're in trouble when God calls us Moses' people. Moses, your people are being rebellious. You better go down and check into it. Moses goes down there, goes straight to Aaron. Was Aaron say? Well, you know, we're hanging around, flip the gold in the fire. Whoop, out came a calf. <laughs> Just lies to his face. The lowest moment in Israel's history. And here is what God says. Don't forget it. When I leave you for 40 days and 40 nights on the most important mission in all the Old Testament, to get the law of God, here's what you do. You create another God. And when I leave you out of church on Sunday and you get to about Tuesday, you've already started with your greed and your pride and your self-centeredness. You've already started to create your own gods that you think about all the time, that you're serving, and that you're becoming like them. And you're very weak. And you're very stubborn. You're very rebellious. And furthermore, the reason we're the worst, not just as bad as everybody else, we're the ones who were given the law. We're the ones who saw the Red Sea divide. We're the ones who know that Christ has risen from the grave and then we're the ones with that knowledge with a public profession of following Him that go out and serve the other gods. That's the reason that we're peculiarly undeserving. Now lastly, and I get one minute to talk about Jesus. (laughs) Look at verses 25-29 through and you'll see we are forgetful about His faithfulness. And here's what Moses says. Folks, after we did the worst, the peculiarly worst sin probably ever committed, I prayed to the Lord. And I reminded Him of two things. I reminded Him, first of all, that He made a promise to the patriarchs. And secondly, I reminded Him that if He destroys you like He's threatened to do, the Egyptians are going to say that... You, God, took them out of Egypt so that you could wipe them out and betray them. And I prayed to the Lord that way. And here's the point, gentlemen God listened. God raised up a mediator, Moses, to pray in our behalf. And God listened to his own mediator. And let me tell you something He's raised up a better mediator. He's raised up the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see him in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is betrayed. And before Peter denies him, what is he doing? He tells Peter what he's doing. Peter, I'm praying for you. Because Satan will sift you like wheat. And I'm praying for you that you will persevere. And gentlemen, have you noticed? Peter persevered. Rotten, corrupt, disobedient, stubborn, rebellious, peculiarly awful, Peter was preserved. Why? Because God raised up a mediator to pray for him. Let me tell you something. God's raised up a mediator to pray for you. And remember this. You're peculiarly undeserving. And Christ is peculiarly gracious. And that's the reason you are where you are. And if you remember why you are where you are, you're likely not only to stay where you are, but to get you to where you're going. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Christ. Thank you for your unlimited patience with us men, your people. Thank you for the promises held out before us. Thank you for fighting all of our battles for us. Thank you for being awesome in your power, using it for our good and our glory, and ultimately for your own. We remember. We remember our un deserved blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.